Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, before this episode starts, I want to talk about some pretty cool news. Oki Investigations now has its own website. It's truecrime.blog. And it is a running blog for crime stories and for this show. So if you're a true crime buff and you want to see some cool things that we gathered while researching each show, including a like timeline of events that we put together, uh, newspaper clippings, court documents, and much, much more, come check us out at truecrime.blog. One, two, three. Hello and welcome everyone to Oki Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. I'm an Oklahoman who loves to investigate crimes that's happened in my state and also across the United States. I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and a love for true crime. The stories that are featured on this show are true stories. The narrative of each story comes from an extensive research through police reports, trial notes, appeals, personal counts, news reports, and much, much more. Opinions in this show should be taken as such. For more information on each story, join us on our Facebook page, Oki Investigations. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is a very special episode, one that I've wanted to cover for some time, but hadn't had all the information on it until now. Today we're talking about the hitchhike slayers who left their mark on our state almost 73 years ago. It was November 3rd, 1948. Robert Taylor started his day like every other during the school year. He got up early in the morning and started his school bus. Robert was one of the drivers for the local school in Arcadia in 1948. It was a quiet Wednesday morning. He picked up the kids one by one and then made his way towards the school. As they approached a bridge that was near the school, Robert saw the most peculiar thing. What looked like a large white piece of clothing was stuck in the rough timber on the side of the bridge. As he drove over, he slowed down to investigate further, but decided against it with all the kids on the bus, and he proceeded to drop them off at the school. At the school, Robert spotted another driver, V.C. Dow. Mr. Dow had also dropped off kids for the school and was wrapping up for the day. Robert decided to tell him what he saw at the bridge. Curious, they both decided to drive down there together and check what was at the bridge. They both got in their buses and made their way down the street, and they pulled up at the bridge at the same time. They got out, walked over, and leaned over the side 
Down below, they could see a white robe, and below that was the body of a man. It was quite obvious he was dead. Both Robert and Mr. Dow went to the nearby police station to report what they found. Those officers quickly acted by calling in Chief Criminal Deputy Sheriff T.M. Field. It didn't take very long for Deputy Field and his men to arrive on the scene. One of the first things Deputy Field noticed was the tire tracks that were in the dirt embankment next to the bridge. He confirmed that neither of the bus drivers had pulled over in this spot, and it was curious because the tracks led right up to the edge of the bridge, as if the killer just pulled up, backed in, and dumped the body right there out of the back of the car. Deputy Field then moved to the body. It was a man in his early to mid-40s. It was hard to pinpoint the age due to the massive trauma that was to his head. It was obvious he had been shot several times in the back of the head. The medical examiner believed right away the body had been dead for a few hours. In its current state, the medical examiner guessed around 1 a.m. that morning was the time of death. Deputy Field checked the dead man's pockets and his wallet was missing. This opened up the possibility of this being a robbery or someone trying to derail the investigation by delaying the identification of the deceased. The front pockets contained small coin purse and about $2 of change inside. It was then Deputy Field noticed a shirt pocket that appeared to be bulging a little. He reached inside and found a small pocketbook. It was, in fact, a small address book. Inside were the names, numbers, and address of people the deceased knew. Also inside this address book was a receipt for car repairs made just the day before. This had the name and the address of the repair garage, and it was located in Joplin, Missouri. Officers had their hands full in this case. News of this murder was national news within just hours of the discovery of the body. The news of this murder ended up working in favor of Deputy Field, who had quickly formed a plan of action on finding out who the dead man was. Authorities in Joplin, Missouri were sent over to the Elect Service Company. It was the service garage that was on the ticket. Employees there confirmed that they did the repairs and they actually remembered the man's name. His name was Carl Beach. They stated that he was driving a 1938 Buick coach and that he wasn't alone. They gave a description of Carl, who was in his 40s, and traveling with him were two young men. They thought they were older teenagers and they didn't have their names. What they did know was that Carl had picked the two up as hitchhikers during his travels. Judging by the descriptions, authorities were guessing that Carl was the man who was murdered. All of this information was relayed to the Oklahoma police. Now, this is actually great police work here. In mere hours, we have an idea of what happened to some degree. 
We know that Carl Beach was traveling through Missouri and Oklahoma. Somewhere, he's picked up two hitchhikers, and now he's probably dead. The next people that the police want to speak to are the two hitchhikers. They, at this point, are their two main suspects. While the police in Missouri were investigating the garage, in Oklahoma, Deputy Field has moved on to the address book itself. First off, he took down the names and addresses of the people in the book. He notes the family members and that many of the addresses are centered in New York. It wasn't long before he received the name from the other detectives that the victim may be Carl Beach. Deputy Field then checked the address book, and the victim had listed an address for Carl Beach. He lived in a town called Corfu in New York. Now, it was Deputy Field's idea to call authorities in Corfu, and they were surprised to get a clearer picture of this case very quickly. A Corfu Justice of the Peace personally knew the victim. He stated that Carl had purchased the 1938 Buick to travel to see his mother in Arizona. Carl was slightly crippled and had to use a motor scooter due to his physical condition. They asked the Justice of the Peace to give a description of Carl, and the description that he gave matched the victim. Knowing that the two hitchhikers could be anywhere at this point, they issued a six-state manhunt. They gave a description of the car, its license plate numbers, and the information on the two hitchhikers, who they knew at this point from the interview at the garage, that one of them was about 5 foot 8, 150 pounds, and the other one was a few inches taller and just a little bit heavier. They both had dark hair. If they stayed driving from the moment of the murder, there was really no telling where they were at this point. It was their hopes that they had not made it far, but they knew that someone smart would move far, far away after committing a murder like this. The police in Oklahoma City were active in this case as well, as one of the closer cities near where this murder happened, it was likely that the killer or killers had made their way through Oklahoma City after the murder. They decided to check the parking lots for the car in the off chance that they might have stopped for the night. Although they did do a thorough search, they did not find the car. Patrol officers all across the state and in each neighboring state were given a description of the car and the two men who were thought to be driving it. The information that they were hitchhikers was included. It was the next day that this information brought them their first big break in this case. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol near Cleveland, Oklahoma, found a man who was hitchhiking towards Tulsa. When questioned, the hitchhiker stated that he was meeting a companion in Tulsa later that night. Not taking any chances, the highway patrol officers decided to arrest the hitchhiker to further question him. The highway patrol took the hitchhiker to the station in Pawnee, 
and began to question him all night. He denied all accusations that he had anything to do with the murder. On the night of the murder, he was at home and was actually able to produce a credible alibi. They let him go the next day because it became obvious that he did not have anything to do with the crime. He just had the unfortunate coincidence of hitchhiking during this manhunt. The next day, a parking lot attendant in Dallas, Texas, was having a very hard day. He watched over a parking lot for a prominent hotel in Dallas. That day, they had painters working on the fire escape of the building. It was being repainted red. The old paint had faded quite a bit. One of the guests at the hotel had noticed red paint splattered on their car. The painters were being careless, and they had dripped paint all over the cars below. Trying to see what kind of damage they were looking at, the attendant checked over the cars in the lot. Several vehicles had red paint dropped on them. It was then he noticed a car near the back of the lot that had some paint on it as well. He walked over and quickly realized that this was not paint that he was looking at. It was dried blood. The interior of the car was sprayed with blood, and the driver's side window was broken with obvious bullet holes. The attendant quickly walked over to the corner street where he knew two patrolmen were typically sitting in their car. He explained to the officers what he found, and they drove over to take a look. The officers knew that whatever they had Someone died in this car recently. They decided there was the best course of action to wait and see who owned the car. They parked nearby and staked out the car. It wasn't too long when two young men were spotted walking towards the car. They were holding several department store boxes and began loading them into the vehicle. The officers quickly approached and arrest the two men without incident. It wasn't until the officers got the two men into the station when they figured out what they may have. The car was a 1938 Buick. It had dry blood, and the two men who were arrested fit the description of the two hitchhikers. They separated the two men into interview rooms and began to work on them. Their names were Harry Raskin, who was 18 at the time, and Max Kletke. At first, they tried to tell a story where they were just passing through town and had nothing to do with the murder. That story quickly fell apart. Max was the first of the two to break. He told authorities that he killed Carl Beach. They asked for an entire confession, and he told the entire story. Max and Harry were trying to get to southern Texas to get jobs on a fishing boat. So, they started out in Michigan. They rented a car and decided to drive across the country. They have a little money and believe that they could make it. However, they didn't have nearly enough and they ran out of money and gas around Fort Wayne, Indiana. Still wanting to make it to Texas, they ditched their rental car and decided to hitchhike to a major city. 
in hopes to find someone willing to take them in the right direction. It was just outside Indianapolis where they were picked up by Carl Beach. At first, they didn't have any real issues. But as night fell, they found that Carl liked to dine at roadside diners, and he was being a little stingy with his money. Max and Harry would ask for some money or some food, and Carl would always say no. He was just giving them a ride, and he did not have enough money to pay for everyone. This became quite the issue because for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Carl would make sure to stop somewhere and deny helping the two boys out. It was as they got into Oklahoma they decided they were going to rob Carl. Both Max and Harry believed that Carl was holding out on them and they were going to teach him a lesson. This escalated when they pulled into Arcadia late that night. They pulled up for gas and they again asked Carl for some money for food and this time he was very short with Max. He told him no and to not ask again. When they were on the road again, they were headed back towards the highway on an empty street. Fuming from the conversation earlier, Max, who was in the back seat, pulled out a pistol and fired a shot, intending to kill Carl. He missed. Before he fired again, Carl, who was shocked, asked, What was that noise? Those were his last words. Max fired four more times and struck Carl in the back of the head. They rolled to a stop, and the two boys decided to roll Carl up in the white robe and then stuffed him in the back of the car. Max started to drive the car and headed back towards the highway. Before they got there, they saw the bridge and decided to dump the body there. To make it easy, they backed the car right up to the edge and opened the back door. Then all they had to do was let him roll out, and he fell into the ravine. When they went through Carl's belongings, they found a sizable amount of money. They decided to stay in a nice hotel in Oklahoma City, and then they got out of town quickly when the news broke about the discovery of the body. When they got to Dallas, they decided to stop for the day and go shopping, not knowing that that act would be their downfall. The two men were brought back to Oklahoma to face justice for their crimes. In December of 1948, Max, who was the confessed shooter, was the first to go on trial, believing that if he pled guilty, he would be given the death sentence automatically. He decided to try his luck with the jury and see if they would be sympathetic to his case. In an effort to show his human side, he took the stand and tried to explain his actions. It didn't go well for him. The prosecution was able to get him to admit the murder without remorse. Max was convicted and was given the death penalty. Harry's trial was almost immediately after Max's. After hearing the outcome, he decided to plead guilty and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. Almost two years to the day of the trial, Max was scheduled to die. 
His attorney tried to get a sentence lower to life in prison, but hit roadblocks at every point. On January 4, 1951, Max wrote a letter to the warden, telling him that his life was hard, but he was thankful that he was able to meet someone like him. He wished his father was more like him, and he thanked his aunts who were kind to him even after the murder. That night, he walked into the death chamber, prayed with the priest, and was electrocuted until he was dead. I couldn't find out the fate of Harry. His prison record is pretty bare of information, and there wasn't any news on him after the trial. This crime was a lot of fun to research. I know I say that a lot, but this is the kind of like extra fun things that I like to look into. This crime was national news when it happened. It involved parties from all over the U.S. You know, even though this wasn't one of those landmark cases where it, the trial was dragged on and you just you didn't see, you know, any of this coming. This was one of those cases that. You know, it created that stigma of the, you know, don't pick up hitchhikers, they're gonna, they're gonna murder you. And that's something that's like stuck around to this day. I mean, think about that. This is, this is like 70 something years ago. It's crazy. But anyways, guys, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't done so already. So when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. I will see you guys next time. See ya. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.